Our readings today come from 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the, the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This is the word of the Lord. You should have an outline called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity Sunday Celebration of the Lord's Day. Those of you who come on Tuesday nights, which is a little over 20 now, uh, will realize that uh, this is part of the series we've been doing on Tuesdays, and we'll be getting back to this Tuesday. But I wanted to uh, bring one, of the, one idea uh, 
with to us on the Lord's Day here. And I really want to just talk about the concept of the Lord's Day. Today in America, they estimate that most Christians go to church about 35 out of 40 Sundays a year, which means they missed uh, 12 to 17 Sundays a year, one-third of the Lord's Days. Now, as I've often said, if you study Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, anything that came out of those traditions may have lost some meaning and lost its bearings a little bit, but it always is rooted in what the apostles actually practiced. And if you therefore go digging, you can get back to the biblical meaning of it. And the early church actually considered missing the Lord's Day as like one of the most serious sins you could commit. They looked at it as a sign that you probably weren't actually uh, really, uh, really a Christian. That's how seriously they took it. Now, if you're like throwing up and you're really sick and so forth, I don't care if you come because I don't got kids and I don't get flu, but, but some of the people with kids would probably rather you stay at home. But honestly, it's become uh, like our whole culture works on, I, the re, I don't even go to restaurants on Sundays because I don't want to make other people work <laughs> on the Lord's Day. Seriously, I, uh, that's why we eat downstairs. So um, let's get into this. For those of you who are doing the Tuesday series, you'll notice that Acts 3, 19, 21 and Isaiah 58, 12 are our theme verses. And Isaiah 58, 12 says, those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins You'll raise up the age-old foundations, and you'll be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Now, you have to see the Geneva Bible of 1599, which some people still swear by is the best English translation ever, or uh, the uh, Orthodox Jewish Bible, to, to, or you, in all other English translations, you miss one major point. When it says, those from among you, it's actually meaning your spiritual progeny. Those who you lead to Christ, disciple, and so forth, will become the people who rebuild the ancient ruins. One of the things you always want to, I don't know if you ever saw the comedy movie Money Pit. Anvesh probably should do that one on a Friday night. But uh, in this Money Pit movie, they, they remodel this old expensive house. It's the worst nightmare than our house has been. And uh, maybe not. But... Uh, <laughs> And uh, we've still got walls that are missing and things, ditches in the yard. My, my wife, what a saint. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but at the end of the movie, they're so amazed that the house came out great and so forth. And the contractor, the guy who's been telling them when he gets saying, how long is this going to take? And he's been, he goes, oh, about two weeks. And he's been saying that for like two or three years. <laughs> you know, oh, a couple weeks, <laughs> you know. What do you mean we're not making any progress? You got your rock pile over here, your debris pile over here, and your trash pile over here. We're making lots of progress. It's a good movie. Um, the, the bottom line is he goes, you know what? The reason the house came out so great is the foundation was intact. Everything else can be fixed. Now, I submit to you that if you're willing to take Bible study to a whole different level, the foundations of real Christianity are still there. They're just not lived anywhere in America today. But they're there. The ancient ruins are there. The age-old foundations. And what we're about as a church is repairing that breach. 
That's the whole stated goal of Grace Christian Fellowship. Acts 17, 11 through 12 says the Bereans, that is the Christians from Berea, were more noble-minded than the Christians from Thessalonica because they sought the... They examine the scriptures daily to see the, if these things are so. If you're ever going to get back to biblical Christianity, you're going to have to get well past, I wasn't brought up that way. I, I'm so, I, I want to cry and pull my hair out and pull your hair out and pull their hair out. Whenever I hear people say, like, I wasn't brought up that way. I just, I'd pull my own hair out, but I don't have any left. I already pulled all my hair out from all that. <laughs> you know, like, what does how you were brought up have anything to do? That's what the Pharisees' doctrine was. This Jesus isn't doing it the way we brought, were brought up to do it. How you were brought up Christian-wise has nothing to do with God, the Bible, or his purposes. Nothing. What the scriptures teach, who Jesus is, and what God's up to has everything to do with what real Christianity is. And if we're willing to search it out, it's still there. Now, this issue of the Lord's Day is actually just one of those issues. So, uh, let's look at this verse, Luke 5, 36-39. He told them a parable, no one tears a piece of new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one who puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must, that's a four-letter word. Pastors using four-letter words at church today. He must, must be put into fresh wineskins. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Or good enough, some translations say. Now, the context is they, the Pharisees are coming up to Jesus and they're saying, why do your disciples not fast when the disciples of John the Baptist fasted and all the disciples of the Pharisees, and we're the real deal is what the Pharisees always thought, we fast and you guys aren't fasting. You're going around feasting and partying and making sinners feel comfortable. What's wrong with you? Jesus answers this way, because as simple as this, new wine must be put into new wineskins. That's why, you know, my wife and I spent a, we planted churches in the 70s and the 80s, 91, we decided to walk away from that to raise a family and so forth. And by, and, and we basically said, if we can find one church that we could have 50% of the biblical ideas in, will join that church because I really dislike being the head guy. I really do. I don't, I'm not, I, that's not my thing. I wish I could just be like, go along for the ride. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? But, uh, so, but, but I couldn't, we couldn't. And, you know, I submit to you that what biblical Christianity is and American Christianity is so far away from one another that they're not even in the same neighborhood. And this issue of the Lord's Day is just one of a hundred or so major issues that need to be reexamined. Now, one of the things you need to understand is uh, when God starts showing, when you start studying the things of God and you start um, understanding, well, gee, we need more power of the Holy Spirit. We need to re-examine this, this and that aspect of the church, the Lord's Day, community, discipleship, or we need to have better paradigms of Scripture study. 
don't stay in a church where you're seeing more than the leadership, hoping they'll change. That's actually rebellion. It's a satanic principle. Go somewhere where the leadership can take you further than you've ever wanted to go before <laughs> or have gone. And if you're seeing significant things that no one else is seeing, find some place where other people are seeing that. So let's get into this celebration of the Lord's Day. I want to talk about when, why, and how, and hopefully I can get through this. First of all, terminology. The Romans called the first day of the week Sunday, the day of the sun. I could go into more about that, but I won't. In the New Testament, the Christians in the early years, in the first five or six centuries, starting with the New Testament times, called it the day of the Lord or the Lord's day. Not to be confused with the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and in Jesus' prophecies. But the Lord's day. Now, Revelation 1, 9 through 11, John uses this phrase. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I don't know if you know, John is the only one of the disciples who wasn't martyred. He, they had tried to boil him in oil. They tried to kill him several times, and he lived through them, kind of like Daniel in the lion's den. So they exiled him to this island named Patmos. And he says, from Patmos, he's right, he sees this vision, and he writes to these seven churches that are listed uh, a little further in, uh, down, but I didn't have enough room to go that far. Uh, I heard behind me a lot what he says. I, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, every Christian knew what that meant. Today, revelation is some dark, mystical thing because we have all these modern ideas about how to interpret it. But the early Christians knew exactly what the book of Revelation was about. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ. And every phrase of it is from the metaphors and word pictures of the Old Testament. And it was a clear communication of the coming of Nero and the coming of per the persecutions against the church and the destruction of Jerusalem, which Jesus had prophesied in Matthew 24 and 25 in what's called the Mount Olive Discord. It was about something that was about to happen within a year or two. It wasn't about Russian helicopters and, and cockroaches and, you know, and some, you know, things you, that, you know, the late great planet Earth and all that kind of nonsense. What's the modern, what's called dispensational premillennialists, which 95% of evangelicals believe that had nothing to do with the Bible. And it has nothing to do with the Bible. When John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice. <laughs> Sorry. By the way, the reason I do all this stuff is I'm passionate to see God's church restored to what it's supposed to be. A loud voice sounded like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Theatra and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Every Christian knew what John was saying was, we all get up early 
some believe, believe they actually met at dawn on their first day of the uh, every day on the first day of the week because Christ rose at dawn. The early church Christians met early the Lord's day every week. And it was considered a very sacred thing. They didn't have any trouble getting people to the 8:30 prayer meeting or the 9:30 Sunday school. Any the people they got they met when the sun came up. And it was called the Lord's day and what John is saying is Despite the fact that I was exiled on this island so that I was an audience of one, I got up with all of you guys to celebrate the Lord's Day because I was with you in spirit all over in all these seven churches in Asia. I wasn't about to miss worshiping with you guys, even though I couldn't be physically there. It's an old joke. Did you ever hear about the two Baptists that were stranded on Desert Island? They got together for the Lord's Day service and they set a goal to have three next week. <laughs> Get it, Desert Island. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, John's basically saying, hey, I met with you guys. And God did all this stuff when I met with you guys because I was faithful to get up at dawn and spend time with the Lord, with the people of God, the best I could, even though I was in exile. Try doing that in an American church, you'll get no one to come. Next week's meeting is at 6 a.m. So, uh, <laughs> I was there. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I started last night at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. and went straight through this morning. Uh, in th so, the first thing you need to understand is the Lord's Day terminology meant the first day of the week. Now, I don't particularly care if you call it Sunday or the Day of the Sun or the Roman name. But the Christians called it the Lord's Day, and I try to say... The Lord's Day. We're getting together for the Lord's Day. I, I'm very meticulous about that. Second thing I want to talk about is interpreting the New Testament in the context of biblical and historical theology. Now, what I mean by that is simply this. After the Civil War in America, there became this big controversy called the Fundamentalist Modernist Controversy. We talk a lot about that at this church. The modernists had all these new modern approaches to Christianity in Scripture and the fundamentalists tried to react against them to hold the line in biblical conservativeness. But in so doing, instead of going back to how the early church answered the same issues in the first, second, and third century, they created all new modern ways of looking at Christianity. So evangelical conservative fundamentalism worldwide, because we've exported it to the whole world, is actually modernist Christianity. And if you stay around and study enough, you're going to find out that when the people when people first hear that, they're like, "That's offensive." That's uh, you study it long enough, you're going to find out it's true. I wouldn't say it if I wasn't sure. So, the way you avoid modernism, Hebrews thirteen twenty talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. The Bible is one covenant that overrides several covenants that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into from all eternity. And there's a continuity to the whole scriptures, not a discontinuity as in modern what's called dispensationalism. Secondly, Matthew 5, uh, Matthew 16, etc., etc., all those verses in Matthew, if you look them up, you'll see Jesus basically said, I will build my church, 
And he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to put it into force and so forth. So there was not this discontinuity. There was actually in the Bible, the next move of God always is from a remnant that comes out of the last move of God. So when Elijah was upset and he says, Lord, they've torn down your altars, they persecuted your prophets, he's saying, all of Israel and Judah is completely apostate. I'm the last faithful guy. The Lord says, you're not, Elijah. I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and my new move is going to come out of those 7,000. God always takes the last move, the new move of God, out of the last move of God. Galatians 3.15 says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. That means the new covenant has to fulfill the old covenant. And the covenant with Adam was fulfilled, and therefore was fulfill, uh, it fulfilled in Noah, and Noah's covenant was fulfilled in Abraham, and Abraham's covenant was fulfilled in David, and so forth. And each of the covenants of the Bible has a continuity, not a discontinuity. And lots of you probably have studied enough by now to know what I'm talking about with that. What he goes on to say is what I'm saying in this is that the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified so as to nullify the promise. God promised the eternal covenant to Abraham and said, In your seed, speaking of Christ, shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And that promise to Abraham is still unfolding. That's what Christianity is. That's what the church is. In the church, when God, as God restores and relays the foundations and, and takes the church back to, we, we've exported a very unbiblical Christianity to the whole world. And there's been much fruit. There's millions coming to Christ everywhere but in a reduced reductionist Christianity, God will restore real Christianity to his whole church worldwide. And what we're doing today will be commonplace in a few hundred years. Trust me. So we talked about the remnant principle already. So moving on. The community of Jesus and the apostles. If you're going to understand the New Testament, one of the things you have to understand is the modernist view was we have preconceived ideas and we slap our proof texts on them and we interpret scripture as if it was written directly to the 21st century. That's what we do. But if you want to interpret scripture correctly, what you need to understand is that Jesus built a community of believers among whom were the apostles. There was about 120 of his followers in the upper room. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he appeared to 500 people. And that community of believers exploded at Pentecost in the thousands, and it's continuing to grow to this day. Now, um, so if you want to interpret the New Testament correctly, the first thing you have to understand is that in Jesus and the apostles, in the Gospels and Acts, there's a living New Testament practice and tradition. There's a, a way of catechism. There's a way of handing down that which was delivered, it keeps saying over and over. Paul says, I gave to you what I received. 
I delivered to you. I handed down. Everyone wants to do something new, but the actual call of God is to find out what he handed down. Jude 3 says, Contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That's what we're to fight for. We're to find the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints in the New Testament through the apostles. And the way to find it is to understand that they're writing in a context of a bunch of churches growing up all over the Roman Empire, and they have a way of doing church that they teach in all the churches. And the 27 books that we call the New Testament were all written before 70 AD, and they were all circulating among the churches, and they weren't officially made a list until the Second Council of Nicaea, but they only the Second Council of Nicaea only acknowledged what the church had been practicing since the time of the apostles. The 27 books that they had all always agreed on that we have in our New Testament. And when they, the New Testament epistles are letters written to specific bodies of Christians living the apostolic community pattern and lifestyle to adjust things within those communities that need adjusting. So Titus is three chapters. Paul calls Titus my true son. Titus is a member of Paul's apostolic team. They've gone all through Crete and evangelized and planted communities of Christians throughout the island of Crete. And Paul tells Titus seven major ideas about how to form these into the apostolic pattern churches. So if you want to understand what the apostolic pattern of churches are, read Titus over and over and try to Organize the thoughts into about seven categories, and you'll be narrowing in on it, zeroing in on it. Now, that's important. Jesus said it this way. He says, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you'll kill and crucify. He's talking about what the Judaizers and the Jews are going to do to the church. And that's what most of the New Testament's about. This is right before, this is Matthew 23, right before Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which was accomplished in 70 AD. And he says, this generation, which is 40 years in the Bible, will not pass away until everything I'm saying is fulfilled. It's not about the end times. It's about the end of Israel as the people of God and the birth of a new people of God, the church, that will fill the earth as the water covers the seas until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God from coast to coast. That's the future. If you want to predict the future, the church will be restored and it'll fill the earth with God's glory. That doesn't mean every person on the planet will be a Christian, but that means that whole nations will be delivered from socialism, the Democrats, the Republicans, all of it, and the IRS and everything else. Whole nations will become godly and Christian. Vote for Jesus. He's going to win. Behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you'll kill and crucify. Some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues. You'll persecute from city to city. What do you see all through the book of Acts in the New Testament? They're chasing Paul and all the other apostles around, persecuting them from city to city. So that upon you, that is upon Jerusalem, 
may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, the first prophet that was killed, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And he finishes that by saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children under my wings like a mother had gathers, but you wouldn't have it. And then he says, Behold, your house... A few chapters earlier, he said, my house was called the house of prayer. Now he disowns the temple, and he says, your house is left to you, Ichabod, is the, is the Hebrew. Desolate, no glory of God. I'm done with you. And I'm going to rebuild on the remnant that of uh, 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 those Jews who became Christians and who took the, the church to its universal mission. I wish I could give you John 16. We already talked about Jude 1, contend earnestly for the faith that's there. we got to find it. The New Testament is not a systematic or comprehensive manual, especially in the epistles. It's written in a context. So you have to understand that historical context. He didn't just write it to the Optimist Club on Thursday afternoons, like we interpret it nowadays. I'm going to claim that verse for me so I can get rich. Okay, so let's, moving on. So why did the apostles change the Sabbath, which was the last day of the week in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, to the Lord's day, the first day of the week? There are actually eight different uh, Christian, uh, some are, are, are Christians, some are cults. There's eight different groups today who teach that the Sabbath should be on Saturday. And most Christians go, what well, doesn't matter, does it? Yes, it matters. If you want to be biblical, it matters a great deal. The apostles started meeting on the Lord's Day for the following reasons. One is the resurrection happened on the first day of the week. That's recorded in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. Jesus didn't rise on Thursday. Secondly, Jesus appeared three times to three different groups of his disciples on Easter Sunday alone. One in the original garden scene that John has given us some good teachings on. If you want to follow it on his podcast, when, the one about Jesus being the gardener. Two on the road to Emmaus. There's actually, uh, you can find this little groups called the road to Emmaus, which is based on that. But the, the whole you know, the disciples that recognized him in the breaking of the bread, and they originally didn't recognize him and so forth. And then later that night, he appeared in the upper room to the, to the main body of disciples three times on the Lord's Day, Easter Sunday, the first day of the week of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, the New Testament. Now, a week later, Jesus appears to Thomas and his disciples eight days later, but if you count biblically, that would be the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. The eighth day is the first day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday is the eighth day or the first day of a new week. Jesus appeared to Thomas and all the disciples again on the Lord's Day. But most importantly... Jesus ascended on Ascension Thursday, and he says, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Ten days later was Pentecost on the Lord's Day. 
And Pentecost is everything. The reason there's so much opposition to Pentecost in the church today is because you basically have a theoretical abstract Christianity till you have Pentecost. You need Pentecost. And until then, you have an abstract. Here's what happened on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is called the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. It celebrated the time that Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai to Israel. Remember when he smashed the golden calves and all that? And in the Old Covenant, God wrote his law on tablets of stone to speak externally to hearts of stone, and they... And they could not do it because they approached it as if it was by performance over and over again instead of by grace. And in Pentecost, he fills all the promises of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Joel 2, 28 through 32, etc. He writes his law on your heart and your mind. And he empowers you to live the Christian life. Because the Christian life is not difficult. It's totally impossible it's absurdly impossible. You can't be a decent Christian. You're a lousy Christian. I'm a lousy Christian. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to be a Christian. Pentecost was on the first day of the week. It was exactly, eight is the day of new beginnings and new creation in the Bible. It was exactly eight Sundays after Easter Sunday. 50 days later. And it was the birth of the church. And a Christianity like we have throughout, especially throughout the West today, that has no power of Pentecost, has no power to live it. I can tell you quite honestly, without the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm one of the worst Christians you've ever met. Except maybe you. <laughs> Because it's not difficult, it's impossible. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, when, you, when I hear about all this knucklehead stuff you're doing, aren't you guys living like mere men? A Christian is not supposed to be a normal man. He's supposed to be a superman. The reason kids love superheroes is because you were meant to be a superhero. You're meant to have powers beyond all the superheroes of Marvel Comics and all that and other knucklehead nonsense that kids like. And kids deep in their spirit know it. You're supposed to cast out demons, heal the sick, walk on water, and you're supposed to be different. Your marriages are supposed to be different. The way you handle your finances are supposed to be different. Everything we do is supposed to be a different city, a different culture, a different lifestyle. And you're supposed to be able to say, you want to know what real life is? Come see how we live together. And you will find Christ, the, the, the lamp himself, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And lampstands, Revelation 120, are churches. A lampstand is where you put a lot of individual lamps so the lamp, the power of the lamp can be magnified so everyone can't go. They can say, well, John Gray, he does all this Christian stuff. He's just a little unusual. But when they see a community of people doing it, they have to say, wow, God is in their midst. And these people don't live like mere men. They're supermen and women.
raising super kids. And you can't do it. You can't try harder, study more, memorize more scripture. You need to humble yourself and receive the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection by the power of, your, of Pentecost. And when you give up trying to do it, that's when you'll be able to do it. I tell people this all the time. I was a drug addict before I was a Christian, and I, was, I smoked marijuana and did other drugs from morning, noon, night, all day long for six years. And after I became a Christian, God started dealing with me to quit smoking marijuana and quit doing drugs. And, and I, like every addict, I, here's what addicts say, after next Thursday's party, it's, so my brother's birthday, I, just, I rolled 21 joints for his birthday, and after we smoked the 21 joints, then I'll quit my drugs. You're, an addict is always bargaining, bargaining that I'll do it later. I'll quit my whatever addiction you have, anger, gambling, sex, whatever your addiction is. Ah, you're bargaining, you're making deals. That's what I was doing for six months. Finally, I got to the end of my rope. I said, God, I can't quit smoking marijuana. I'm actually hoping that if I give up marijuana in this life, that in heaven I'll get a big mountain of it. But then I, <laughs> then I keep worrying that like, if it's all eternity, no matter how small, slow I smoke it, I'll run out of that mountain of marijuana. <laughs> I mean, it was my idol. I was an addict. And I finally said, God, I can't quit. I can't even want to quit. And the Holy Spirit said, now I can help you. And I was set free, and I haven't done drugs for 42 years. It, it, you can't be a Christian. I can't be a Christian. He's the only Christian. And you can only become a Christian by receiving the power of the resurrected Jesus. That's why Pentecost Sunday is so important. Here's what happened on Pentecost Sunday. Number one, the, the fulfilling of the Feast of Weeks. He wrote their, the law on their hearts and, and on tablets of flesh. The coronation of the ceremony of King Jesus. Now, people go, well, that's not in the Bible. You read your whole Bible. Every king in every culture was always coronated. And the coronation ceremony the prophet poured the oil on Saul's head and on David's head, and he poured it until it poured down his robes and his beard and into the earth below him, saying that this anointing of the Holy Spirit is for every place you tread your feet and your whole dominion. So when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Go make disciples of all nations and so forth. When he ascended to the Father, there was a coronation ceremony. And at the, in that coronation ceremony, God started pouring the oil of the Holy Spirit on King Jesus. And that oil poured out into Acts 2 called Pentecost. And that oil is still pouring. And when that oil pours on you, you'll be empowered to live the impossible Christian life. Frankly, when I first became a Christian, I wasn't actually too keen on the idea. I was still trying to, like, bargain my way out of it. Couldn't I just get a little time off for bad behavior or something? God has to change you. Like, that's why Samuel says to Saul, when you leave this place, you'll come upon a group of prophets, and the Spirit of God will fill you, and you'll be changed into another man. 
That's why the baptism in the Spirit is so important, because when you get baptized in the Spirit, especially if you learn how to yield to the baptism in the Spirit all the time and build yourself up in the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll be changed into another man. Otherwise, you'll be a lousy Christian and a lousy pastor, and you'll just be trying harder. And you'll really try hard, and you'll bring forth maybe a little shriveled up raisin. then you'll sing songs like, I've got a drip of life flowing. Maybe a dampness. I got a little dampness. But you won't have a river because he is the river. And you can only have the river when you're drinking from the fountain of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Moving on, on Pentecost, the church was born. Uh, all through the New Testament and the Old, thank you, there's a phrase called the promise, the promise, the promise, the promise. And part of the promise was that there would be a different encounter with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's amazing that John says the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, what could he mean by that? Because in the Old Testament, Elijah, Elijah, they raised people from the dead, they parted Red Seas, so forth. He's saying that the new covenant and filling of the Holy Spirit is something more powerful than what Moses and Elijah had. And that's what you're to expect your Christian life to look like. Are you there yet? Are we? Thank you. Sorry. Man, our expectations have become so full of minuscule unbelief it's it's putrid in the sight of god god wants to turn the whole world upside down he did it in the first century and he'll do it again and there's a real christianity we there won't be a few isolated pockets of people preaching it it'll fill the whole earth and there'll be thousands preaching this message Upon ten thousands, upon hundreds of thousands, there will be literally myriads and myriads of myriads of people preaching this positive eschatology that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. That's prior to Jesus coming back. Go back to the first verse, Acts three nineteen. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies become a footstool. Heaven must receive Jesus until the period of restoration of all things. He's not going to come back to bail us out. Remember when I first became a Christian, I ran into this dear, sweet old lady friend of my mom's that was of this whole modern eschatology, dear little Pentecostal lady. And I saw her in a grocery store, and she says, Oh, Brother Weiss, because your brother, when you, you know, when you become a Christian, Oh, Brother Weiss, things are bad. I don't know how much more I can take. I sure hope the Lord comes back in the next couple weeks so I can hold on. I'm like, what the heck did you get baptized in? Some kind of poisonous lemon juice or what? <laughs> like, you need, you, I love you, but you need some power. <laughs> Holy cow. Batman. The, Pentecost was the first post-resurrection proclamation of the gospel and 3,000 people came in to the church in one day. Do you know there has been meetings in Africa today, especially in Nigeria uh, and other places where the there were over 4 million people in attendance and to see the crowd, they actually had to fly helicopters over because the crowd disappears over the horizon 
and over 400,000 people came to Jesus. Now, that's with a reduced, Americanized, nonsense, half-hearted, half-something-else Christian message. Can you imagine what's going to happen when the church restores the real message? Believe me, I don't care if communist China tries to stop the Christian revolution that's going in on its midst like the Roman Empire. They'll never stop it. 35,000 people a day are coming to Christ in, in, in China where it's illegal, and it's going to spread. We live in America, and we see the decline of Christianity and the decline of the church and the decline of the family, and we think that's the way it is worldwide. Believe me. There is going to be a restored biblical Christianity that's going to become the most God-awesome, fierce force that's ever hit this planet. And the question is, are you going to get in on it or not? Sorry, I'm preaching, I guess. I have a license for it, so it's probably okay. Well, I wish I could go into more things, the birth of the first Christian community, its subsequent lifestyle. All this happened on the Lord's day called Pentecost. So the church changed the the Sabbath day to the Lord's day because the church is the beginning of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new kingdom. And you, if you received Christ and got filled with his spirit, you became a new creature that's supposed to be doing awesome new things. Now, moving on, the apostolic New Testament practice of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper communion. Uh, We read some verses on it. Acts 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week when we are gathered together to break bread. Paul had a longer message than even Brother Greg and people... And he prolonged his message till about midnight. I promise I'm not going that long. First <laughs> <No. laughs> Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be. Why? Because we're already together on the first day of the week. Because no Christian would miss the first day of the week. And they didn't just come to the 10.30 worship service. They came to the 8.30 prayer meeting at Sydney's house. And then the 9.30 Sunday school and the 10.30 worship. And they stayed for the dinner. And they prayed for people till 5 o'clock in the afternoon. If you look at any move of God in history, they didn't have one hour, one and a half hour meetings. They had the Lord's Day together. And it was four hours, six hours. You know that even the Amish Anabaptists, it's kind of a dying tradition, but it was born out of a revival four or 500 years ago. They have two dinners on the Lord's Day together because they're together that long. And the meeting's not over until the softball game's done. Because they love softball. Can't argue with them there. But... Uh, That's what John means when he says, I was in the spirit on that. Now, point E, post-apostolic anti-Nicene fathers' writings. I'm past time, but you can shoot me later. Uh, Hopefully, you're learning something. Uh, Let's go through a little of this. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul says, as I direct in all the churches. See, there is a pattern that was done in all the churches. 
In 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. None of the churches of God practice something other than coming together on the Lord's day. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, here's, so you understand, after the apostles died, their communities went on. Do you know that that John Mark and John the, the Revelator, that is John who wrote the Gospel of John, both became the head pastor at Ephesus at one period or another. A church that Paul planted. Later, Timothy served as the head pastor, and later, Paul or John served as the head pastor. There's many documents in church history that verify that. Now, here's some documents. The Dadachi from 70 AD. I'm going to read a few things. Here's what that says. But every Lord's day, gather yourself together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions. That's where the, if you're from a Lutheran, Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox tradition or Anglican, you know that you have the sacrament of penance on Saturdays. On Saturdays, you don't go out and say, Saturday night's the only night I got left to party because we have Friday night fellowship. On Saturday, you prepare your heart to meet with the Lord on Sunday. You confess your sins to one another. You get reconciled. You repent. You humble yourself. You get filled with the Spirit. And if we did that, we would see powerful things every Lord's Day. Instead of coming in half hungover, stayed up watching a movie till three. Or, are you kidding me? Because we're not valuing God in his presence. Start when the sun goes down on, the, on Saturday nights and come having spent all that time being ready to come together on Sunday morning and see what God will do. Gather yourselves together, break bread, and give thanksgiving after you confess your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure, but let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you. Wow, if we practice that, we wouldn't have a lot of problems. Until they be reconciled. Don't, you're not supposed to come together until you're reconciled to your brothers and sisters. That your sacrifice, sacrifice may not be profaned. He's, when it talks about eating the Lord's uh, table in an unworthy manner that she read about, it means trying to come on any basis except grace as a total sinner before God made righteous by Christ or coming with any unreconciled relationships in the church. I don't like this brother because he likes whatever reason. It's amazing. That's what it means to eat the body and blood of Jesus in an unworthy manner. Yeah, I came and had communion, but I was half mad at my wife while I was doing it, and I didn't certainly didn't like Brother Sam. And you know, you know, wow. The letter to Barnabas. We keep the eighth day, Sunday, with joyfulness, the day also on, on which Jesus rose again from the dead. The letter of Ignatius of Antioch called the letter to the Magnesians. Those who were brought up in the ancient order of things, that is the Jews, have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. Or, another translation, we have seen how former adherents of the ancient customs have since attained to new hope so that they may have given up keeping the Sabbath and now order their lives by the Lord's day instead of the day when, when life first dawned for us. Thanks to him, Jesus, and his death. Justin Martyr, who got a, Martyrion is the word for martyr, 
That means he got killed. He lived uh, during the reign of Antonius Pius and suffered martyrdom in 165 AD during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman Empire. Um, I could tell you more about him, but here's from his first apology written in 155 AD. You know, by the way, when you read Polycarp and so forth, Polycarp was discipled by John. So if you want to know who really knows uh, the, how to understand the gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, don't ask some modern evangelical TV preacher who can barely read. Read Polycarp because he knew John. They hung together. Well, they hung separately. But... Uh, <laughs> Oh, well. Here's what uh, Justin Martyr says in his first apology. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs... I can't believe that this stuff isn't understood today. The memoirs of the apostles or the writing of the prophets are read. That's the Old and the New Testament, by the way. As long as time permits. They read, they had scripture reading as long as time permitted. Try doing that in the modern American church and see if anyone comes back. When the reading has ceased, the president or the, the bishop verbally instructs and exhorts to the, to the imitation of these good things. In other words, he stands up and teaches about all the scriptures that were read that we ought to do them. <laughs> Wouldn't that be radical? But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day in, on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. The Didascalith, written in 225.80. On the first day of the week, let there be service and the reading of holy scriptures, because on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, our Lord rose from the place of the dead, and on the first day of the week he rose upon the world. And on the first day of the week he ascended up to heaven, and on the first day of the week he will appear at last with the angels of heaven. Actually, he ascended on a Thursday, but still a quote. <laughs> Origin from his commentary on John uh, chapter 2, verse 28. Hence it is not possible that the day of rest after the Sabbath should have come into existence from the seventh day of our God. On the contrary, it is our Savior who, after the pattern of his own rest, caused us to be made in the likeness of his death and has also his resurrection. Well, I, could, I got 11 more quotes, so I'm going to move on. You can have my notes if you want afterwards. We'll auction them off. We'll probably get 50 cents or something. All right. Uh, how did the early Christians celebrate the Lord's Day? I know I'm past, but I'm going to give you this way. I don't have to do a series next Sunday and bump John off. Here's eight things. If you did all these things in that are biblical in the practice of the early church, you could not have a one-hour Sunday meeting. And I don't want to be a part of mamby-pamby, lukewarm Christianity. I had that already before we started this church. I don't want to be a part of any Christians that aren't dedicated to changing the world. There is a whole society out there that needs to be liberated. People full of bitterness, divorce, depression, gambling addictions, fears, hate, whatever you, alcohol, drugs, can't read. They, there is no one else coming except you.
That's why I'm so radical about this stuff. You are who's coming. Roy Hall to the rescue. Nobody else is coming. All right, real quick, eight things they did on the Lord's Day. One, they met early in the morning, the first day of the week. Now, lots of traditions had what's called evening vespers. That is, they started to get ready for the Lord's Day on Saturday night. They certainly didn't go to movies and say, this is our only night to party. Secondly, they read scripture. 1 Timothy 4, 13. Until come, I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. That be, is because the church grew out of the synagogue. In the synagogue, mostly, it means with the word. Sin, lagos, with, sin is with, the word. And it was a place where they read lots of scripture. Third, they had communion. That is the Eucharist. That is the Lord's Supper. Look at Acts. There's 2.42, Luke 2. There's a bunch of verses there. Fourthly, they had teaching. Uh, Your notes should have a verse to go with it. I have a different set of notes than you guys do. Mine's a little more complete. So hopefully you have that. Worship through giving of tithes and offerings. Now, I appreciate, you know, that some people in our church will set it up so that their tithe check gets automatically deducted from their paycheck and it arrives in the mail and so forth. And I will take your money anytime. (laughs) We need money. Obviously, we're a very poor church. That's why we have holes in the carpet. So we're saving up to get no holes in the carpet. We have holy carpet. But, But... You know what? It should be part of your worship. You know, one of the things I was taught from the time I was 17, I, uh, and I quit being a pagan and became a Christian, is when I got my paycheck every Friday, the first thing I did was, was move the decimal point one over, round it up a dollar, and write a check to the church for 10% of my gross income. Why gross income? Because I don't want to admit that the, that the government has first crack at it over God. Not willing to concede that ground despite our oppressive taxation. Because that's why we have that. That's why we have oppressive taxation because Christians have not been obedient. The average Christian gives 2 to 3% of their income to God, which means you're not converted to Christ because you're still doing your thing. That's what it means. It means you're a false convert. You say you're a Christian, but there's no biblical evidence thereof. It's just your own feeling, and there's plenty of people on TV and radio who will tell you you're right and take your money. They worship through giving of tithes and offerings. Just to let you know, a tithe is 10% of your income, and offering is any Christian cause that moves you after that. Uh, and I probably don't want, shouldn't teach on this, but I guess I will. You know, my wife and I, we get together every January. And we decide all the Christian causes that we want to support above our ties and how much we're going to send to them every month. And we usually, you know, there were times when we, our business was doing well enough that that amounted to like 1000 a month. And sometimes it's as low as two or 300 a month. But it's something. If you, you know, send $10 a month to some mission in Nairobi, Kenya. Do it. That's, you, you give 10% to your local church and you give to other Christian causes. One Christian cause you should be given to is build yourself a Christian library. Buy Christian books. Buy the truth and sell it not. Proverbs. Sixthly, they, uh, they 
had prayer, prayer, praise, worship. They read the Psalter. They sung the Psalter. Early Christian art, by the way, always shows the Christians with their faces uh, lit up, smiling, uh, glory on their face, and their hands lifted to God. In modern, you know, modern Western, especially English-speaking people, some Oriental people and some English people are the most reserved people on the planet, and we sit there, I will praise you. I sure hope I'm not singing loud enough that anybody can hear me because I don't. You know, like, punch the person next to you when you're singing. Tell them Jesus loves them. <laughs> Something. Get excited. I'm just kidding. All right. All right, last seven. Almost done here. They recited creedal statements. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7 is actually a creedal statement. That's where the lines in the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed come from about his resurrection according to the scriptures. They come from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. Guess what? 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16 was a creedal statement. Actually, 1 Timothy 3, 16 is a creedal statement that the churches recited together to declare their faith as a community. When the evangelicals stopped saying creeds in the late, in the, from 1830 to 1880 is when all the modern cults began to be born. The creeds had wiped out the cults from the 5th century on. There was one or two cults for a period of about 1,200 years. Today, we have hundreds of cults. Because if you recite the Nicene Creed every week, here's what will happen. It won't lead you to Christ. But almost everyone who becomes a Christian has a season in their life where they start thinking about eternal things and God's knocking on their door and they're thinking about becoming a real Christian because they've just been a church-going religious and they're thinking about actually coming to know God and give Him their all. If you don't grow up in a creedal tradition, whoever gets to you first, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, or any other demonic cult will get you. But if you grow up in a creedal tradition and, you know, Christian scientists start knocking at your door and stuff, you'll be like, wait a minute, no trinity, no incarnation, uh-uh. You'll end up at least in, a, in an orthodox biblical church. That's why creeds are so important, because your kids are going to have to come to a place where it's not your, their, it's not your faith in their life anymore. It's got to become their own faith. And if they grow up in, in catechism classes and creeds, when they do come to know the Lord, they're going to be directed to a very solid biblical church, because they're going to have that internal barometer totally programmed into them by being raised right. And God is going to introduce himself to them. You just need to make sure you've laid the right foundations for that to happen. Lastly, they fellowshiped, and it says they spent a long time with the disciples. Guess we did that today. So, uh, John, Jason, come and deliver these people from me. 